Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to do Marsilius of Padua. A few weeks back we did Dante, and having done Dante, we kind of thought, you know, after Dante, Marsilius comes up, and he talks about some of the same themes, but in a bit of a different way. And it might be fun to build on the discussion from Dante by doing Marsilius. So that brings us to where we are today, doing Marsilius of Padua. And oh, there's so much to say about Marsilius of Padua. He is someone that a lot of political theorists who study this period find very interesting because, of course, he has influence from Aristotle. He has uh, that antique influence that you often see among medieval scholasticists, but he takes it in a direction that is very different and in many ways anticipates the direction that a lot of early modern thinkers will eventually head in. So... We're going to have some fun, but we're going to start by asking Alex. As we're reading Marsilius, what stood out to you? What seemed especially interesting? Well, no tolerance for institutions like the papacy, which claim some kind of divine right to politics. This effort to fully naturalize political authority, which, yeah, I guess is kind of exploiting the wedge that Thomas Aquinas grew a few generations before, but really pushing um, the gap between what you might call a natural virtue or a phil- philosophical virtue and uh, a supernatural spiritual virtue. And yeah, natural reason versus faith. Yeah, Marsilius is, takes this argument quite far because he is declared a heretic by Pope John the Twenty Second. And once you're declared a heretic by Pope John XXII, or once you're prepared to be declared a heretic by Pope John XXII, uh, then you can take things rather far. And Marsilius does, uh, certainly by the standards of this period. Uh, Marsilius is coming up in an era where you have a pope who is based in Avignon and is therefore very friendly to France, because of course Avignon is otherwise surrounded by French territory. So when the popes were based in Avignon, they uh, had to have a good relationship with the French. Politically, it was rather unavoidable. And this, of course, is to the disadvantage of the Holy Roman Emperors, who the French kings are, of course, interested in weakening. The Holy Roman Emperors are now having to deal with a pope who is more or less in the French pocket and will tend to follow French, the French interest whenever it conflicts with the interest of the Holy Roman Empire. And of course, where is France competing with the Holy Roman Empire? Over Italy. As you may recall from episodes where we've done, say, Machiavelli, the French got very interested in in potentially having influence in Italy. The Holy Roman Empire, of course, had a territorial claim on Italy. Italy was part of the Holy Roman Empire. But in practice, the Italian city-states had a very large degree of autonomy and the emperor's power in Italy was pretty limited. So, of course, if you're the Holy Roman Emperor, one of your goals is to increase the level of real power you exercise over your Italian territory and 
in Marsilius's time, there's a Holy Roman Emperor by the name of Louis IV. I know because his name is Louis, you think he's the King of France. You may think he's the King of France because he's a Louis, but it, it must be remembered that the Germans and the French are both Franks, and sometimes they do use the same names because they are not as different as they make themselves out to be the Germans and the French. So Louis IV is a Holy Roman Emperor. He is Louis of, the, of Bavaria. And when he comes to power, the Pope, John XXII, refuses to coronate him. Refuses to coronate him. So Louis IV is, is none too keen on this Pope. And the Pope is none too keen on him. And Marsilius, at this point, writes the Defender of the Peace, his magnum opus, and even before it's come out, he is in the process of fleeing Paris and getting the hell out and fleeing to the court of Louis IV. Because as soon as he writes The Defender of the Peace, Marsilius knows he is in for it. And sure enough, as he's fleeing, he is declared a heretic. And um, he shows up in Louis IV's court and becomes Louis IV's spiritual advisor. It's all kind of interesting because Marsilius himself was not originally trained principally as a priest. A lot of his training focused on natural science and, and medicine early on. But as was common in, in this medieval period, you could branch out rather rapidly, and Marsilius did branch out. So what is it that he says in The Defender of the Peace to get everybody so exasperated? I'm going to give Alex a crack at answering that question, and I'm going to fill in some gaps if there are any. So, Alex. How does Marsilius tick everybody off? Um, well, this might not sound great because I guess Dante did the same thing and he didn't get the same amount of pushback. But a generation before in Paris, you could make a similar kind of argument, naturalizing the church. But people like John of Paris would claim that the divine authority is still allowed. And in Marsilius, that's just completely not the case. Um, so for a generation before, for example, it was claimed that political virtues are good on their own term regardless of whether or not they lead you to salvation and actually they're complete on their own terms unlike what Thomas Aquinas said who said you also need the faith um, but the generation before still said in certain matters uh, the papacy does have jurisdiction but Marsilius of Padua says no political virtue is good on its own terms it is complete and the divine power is not allowed at all and even though Dante yeah. said the, sim the same thing, I think maybe because Dante translated uh, some biblical works or something, he would... Well, Dante, just... Dante's got two swords, right? With Dante, you do have two different and distinct swords, right? Each of which has a divine, uh, divine background. So for Dante, the emperor has an independent divine basis, that is separate and distinct from the Pope's divine basis, but each has a divine basis. Marsilius goes a good deal further than this in attacking the ability of the church to exercise any kind of authority in this world. Because I would say there's, there's maybe four principal ways that Marsilius really cheeses off John. First is arguing that there can only be one supreme authority, because if there are two authorities, then those authorities can come into conflict with one another. And if we're to defend the peace, peace requires one supreme authority. 
So once we are going to say one supreme authority and it's the emperor and not the pope, we are going one step beyond two swords doctrine. Secondly, Marsilius argues that God has forbidden the priests to become involved in temporal affairs. If the priests are not allowed to be involved in temporal affairs, then they cannot be the supreme authority. The head of the priests cannot be the supreme temporal authority. And so if there has to be one supreme authority, it cannot be a priest and cannot be a bishop and cannot be the pope. Third, Marsilius argues that divine law can only be enforced in the next world so that everyone has the opportunity to repent. If the priests are able to enforce divine law in this world, they are usurping the role of God in judging the souls. Only God can judge the souls. That happens after death, and by trying to judge the souls before the trial of life is finished, the priests are exceeding their mandate in this world. Fourth, Marsilius kind of denies that Christ ever appointed Peter as head of the church, and he kind of denies that Peter even came to Rome, and therefore the Pope, who is Bishop of Rome, isn't Peter's successor as head of the church. So he disputes the position of the Pope, uh, disputes even the, the, the appointment of the Pope and the connection of the Pope to Christ. So this is an extremely, extremely contrary to Catholicism argument. And in many ways, it anticipates a lot of the kinds of objections theologically that we'll see in Protestant theory. But of course, Marsilius's work is motivated very heavily by political concerns. And so for the most part, he's not thought of first and foremost as a theologian. He's thought of first and foremost as a political theorist. I talked to my friend Rafe, who came on this show a long time ago to talk about, I think it was Augustine and Schmidt and you know, I asked Rafe at Cambridge, do they teach Marsilius as a theologian? Do they do, they do his theology? And he says, no, uh, they don't teach Marsilius as a, in theology because uh, everything Marsilius says about theology, somebody else has already said. Uh, who's the somebody else? Well, in large part, it's the Franciscans. The Franciscans make the argument that uh, it's acceptable for priests to take vows of poverty, giving up their property in imitation of Christ and the disciples, the apostles. Now, within the Franciscans, there is a cohort called the Fratricelli, and they go further. They argue that priests who do not take vows of poverty are damned and have no power, and that the Fratricelli refuse to answer to those wicked priests. They instead propose that they should answer to the Pope alone, and, you know, even him, that's a bit of a push. So John considered the Fratricelli to be heretics, and he argued that their arguments undermine the church's uh, uh, claims to property and therefore its temporal power base. Uh, They undermine the legitimacy of the bishops. They challenge many very central elements, right? So in opposition to the Fratricelli, John argues that ownership is tied to use. So if you use something, you must own it. So since no one can live without using food, no one can live without owning food, and therefore no one can live without property. And therefore there's nothing wrong with the church holding it, right? Marsilius borrows from the Fratricelli and argues that actually uh, they have a point here that the apostles and Christ did not 
have property, that the church originally was not this property holding body, and that there's a difference between using something and owning it, that you can have a right to use something that's a delegated right without owning the thing outright. And so Marsilius mounts a bit of a defense of this fratricelli position. And uh, indeed, a lot of the things that Marsilius says theologically uh, are rooted in some of the things that the fratricelli say. But there's also a, a further epistemological basis to this argument that comes out of Aristotle that I do think we should discuss. And I think you know, sometimes if you're just reading this text and you haven't read a lot of texts from this period, you might to some degree miss or downplay some of these elements. Uh, but it is important to bear in mind that there's a theory of knowledge at work in this text. Because for Marsilius, knowledge requires a, communi a community that can communicate ideas from one generation to the next, right? To be able to have knowledge, you have to be able to get some I these ideas from, from people. You have to be able to talk to other people in your surroundings about the things that you're observing or about the things that you're learning about and get a kind of common language together to share whatever it is. Otherwise, knowledge would have to begin again with every person. Every person would have to start afresh. So the only way that knowledge can be shared or passed down and therefore gained over time is if there is a community of knowers who can share ideas and share experiences, right? And of course, to have a community, you need a set of people who are able to talk to each other, who have a common language for communicating, who occupy the same kind of discursive space, you know, the same physical space. And all of this requires a politics, right? A politics whereby the territory of the community is defended and the territory is kept peaceable so that people can pursue knowledge and people can talk to each other and they can all do this in languages they can understand, right? Now, this theory of knowledge dumps natural law as it would be typically understood by someone like Thomas Aquinas. So, for Marsilius, to know the law is to be part of a community of knowers, and therefore the law depends on the community. It is not something that you can just get from examining uh, you know, the sensory on your own, from investigating on your own. It's not something you can get from purely establishing some kind of theological connection to divine truths or to, to uh, further, further kinds of, of divine law or natural law, which stands outside of the community, which the community would answer to. Instead, the law itself comes out of the community because to establish knowledge is to have community, and therefore there can't be law outside of community for Marsilius. So there cannot be a set of natural laws which freestand the actual politics of states. So the emperor executes the law of the community. So there's a standard that's established by the community and the emperor brings citizens into line with the standard. Okay? So since the law belongs to the whole community, the emperor's authority to execute the law depends on the consent of the community. It's the community that legislates, not the emperor himself, except in a very delegated way. So the emperor is in this executive function and the emperor can only make new laws with the consent of the community. Now, in practice, what does this mean? In practice, it means elective monarchy. It means a monarch, an emperor that is elected 
And when the emperor dies, a new election is held to pick a new emperor. And for Marsilius, there is no real reason to prefer, uh, you know, to, to prefer, say, a Republican form versus a, a principality. You don't get the kind of binary between principalities and republics that you might recognize from, say, Machiavelli, who comes along later. For Marsilius, like for Aristotle, there are multiple different types of regime. There's rule by the one, rule by the many, and rule by the few. And those can be in both virtuous or corrupt forms. So you have aristocracy, you have oligarchy, you have democracy, you have monarchy, you have tyranny. Those Aristotelian regime types, that language is in Marsilius. And so there isn't uh, a huge difference between a virtuous form of rule by the few, say an aristocracy, and a virtuous form of rule by the one. There is a, a slight preference, I think, in Marsilius for monarchy, if only because that keeps the authority singular and one and supreme. And in that respect, Marsilius is a bit like Hobbes in valuing the maintenance of the peace through having a singular supreme authority around which there's a consensus. There's a, a public consensus that that emperor is the supreme authority, right? So no matter how virtuous the prince is, because he is just one person, he can't be wiser than the law. And he can't lack partiality in the way the law does. And for that reason, the prince is ill-advised to act as legislator. The prince is constrained by the law and can just execute it. And here we get a little bit of the kind of you know, maybe if you if you if you've read any Kelson or if you're familiar with the concept of legal positivism, some of those ideas, uh, there are some similarities here in Marsilius. This idea that the law precedes the the, poli the politics and that the constitution determines the ruler, rather than say politics determining the law, politics determining the form of constitution. The law is put first in this theory. But by doing that, he's able to uh, both exalt the power of the prince while also giving an account of how the prince is constrained. The prince is constrained by the fact that the prince is not wiser than the law and is not there principally to serve as legislator, but just to align the citizens with the law, as interpreted, of course, by the prince, because who else would be able to interpret it? But the prince's interpretation has got to stay sufficiently aligned with the community such that the prince maintains this consensus. Right? The election is supposed to marshal this consensus. But of course, if a prince contradicts the wisdom of the community regularly and repeatedly, that becomes a more fraught thing. And so we're, we're coming back in here with some of the ideas that we see in Roman and Byzantine political theory about an emperor enjoying a consensus that is in some part based on the emperor behaving or playing a, a particular role in a particular way. And I think that is really interesting. And, and the fact that we have in Marsilius a specific mechanism for making sure the consensus exists in Rome, in uh, the Byzantine Empire, you don't have this formal system of election for emperors. What you tend to instead get is dynasties that try to establish themselves as hereditary, but after a time, their, their charisma runs out and they get displaced. And you get usurpers, 
Marsilius, by codifying this electoral system and trying to constitutionally instantiate it, tries to lock down a mechanism for generating consensus around an emperor. Oh, that makes sense? Even though each of the lawmakers, so the citizens, never executes that power, and yeah, their judgment is basically, it's, it's a multiplicity, isn't it? Because, yeah, they correspond yeah. to different offices of the city. The laws are different offices, and then the prince is the one office that guides the rest and tells them what to do, and is the only office that can coerce them in line with some kind of standard. Um, but yeah, it can fracture a lot because judgment or law, in a very vague sense, without not law proper, which is when you coerce people to the standard, but just in the sense of judging things truly, as you said, is meant to be done by the entire city, and it, that can only improve over generations and generations. Yes. So one of the, the difficulties of this is this idea that the consensus uh, from Arcilius can either be of the universal body of the citizens or of just its prevailing part. And this emphasis on prevailing part, of course, allows for electoral systems like the kind which actually prevailed in the Holy Roman Empire of this time. The German Holy Roman Empire had an electoral system in which the major lords, the major nobles of the realm, enjoy a vote, but most ordinary people do not. And prevailing part is vague enough that it can incorporate most of the kinds of forms of election which were likely to occur in medieval Europe. So it should not be interpreted to mean that this is a straightforward argument for a, a universal suffrage type vote on the emperor, because that certainly is not what this is. But then once you are not doing that, uh, and indeed, once you, you realize that this is a very Aristotelian theory, although it's Aristotelian in a different way from the mainstream scholasticist accounts associated with Aquinas, Prevailing part will, of course, exclude many of the different classes uh, and uh, you know, it will exclude women, it will exclude the poor, that Aristotle himself would exclude. It will exclude slaves, it will exclude those who are not expected to have the requisite virtue because, from Arcilius, the emphasis is here, here is on a community of knowers and therefore the community of knowers has to include only people who are able to participate in knowledge production. And therefore, if you think that particular classes of people are not capable of participating in knowledge production, then those people are not going to be part of the electoral mechanism. But all classes participate in knowledge production because knowledge is any craft, whether it's state craft or you know, military or even just building or just uh, trade. or because well, here we have to ask what counts as a craft, right? And... There are ways of reading craft which are very narrow and ways of reading craft which are very wide. Now, I agree with you that craft here is wider than you might think. So craft doesn't just mean philosopher kings or educated elites. Uh, craft could also include people who you know, perhaps uh, make things. It, it could include people who are merchants. But... It's not going to include slaves because for Aristotle, slaves do not do a, perform a craft. Slaves are tools or instruments for the performance of crafts by the people who own them. Uh, similarly, women are not uh, attributed in Aristotle the, the role of, of craft performance uh, because for Aristotle, they have incomplete reason. 
So those we would expect to be excluded. There's also the question in Aristotle of the vulgar craftsman, the, the person who is performing a craft but doing it mainly to make money or to be famous or well-liked. And that person for Aristotle is not considered worthy of citizenship because they are not using the craft to develop their virtue. They're using the craft in a kind of uh, vulgar way. So those people might also potentially be excluded from this kind of schema. The thing about prevailing part is that it is not so well defined that we're able to say exactly what it means. But because so much of this theory draws on Aristotle, we can have some guesses about what it might mean. And because we know that this is a theory that Louis IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, can get behind, that also helps us to guess at what it might mean. It might mean the kind of electoral mechanism which prevails in the Holy Roman Empire of that period, right? Um, now, as it happens, when uh, Marsilius flees the court, uh, flees, flees Paris and comes to the court of Louis IV, Louis IV then goes into Italy and marches to Rome so that he can have the Roman people crown him emperor since the Pope is so unwilling to do it. And he has Marsilius travel with him and give him advice. You know, I've seen in uh, Annabelle Brett's introduction, she uh, describes Marsilius as, as Louis' vicar. So they go together and uh, Marsilius has the Roman people crown him emperor. And then he declares the Pope a heretic and then he set, tries to set up an anti-pope in Rome that he controls. And this authority to set up a pope is also justified by Marsilius's work. Because in the second discourse, Marsilius will argue that the any kind of temporal role for priests must ultimately stem from the secular emperor. Right. So if the emperor wishes to appoint a pope, the emperor certainly can do such a thing because the emperor is acting on the basis of the wisdom of the whole community. And if the pope exercises powers, then those powers are delegated powers coming from the political community whose will is expressed by the emperor. So it is possible for Louis IV to appoint popes and bishops and priests and so on, and for those bishops and priests and popes and so on to uh, use property and to uh, make decisions. But those decisions, the authority to make those decisions and the use of the property stems from ultimately the consent of the population as expressed by the will of the emperor and it does not come from some other spiritual mandate that is extra political. And the reason that Marsilius is so keen on doing this, he wants to reunite the moral and political realms. He wants to bring them back together. He feels that there's been a subordination of the political by the spiritual, and that that has been to the disadvantage of both. And so he's trying to get them back sewn together nice and tight. Now, of course, this doesn't really come off in the history of thought. We end up instead with a lot of influence going to Machiavelli. Machiavelli, who splits these things off totally and treats 
politics is entirely separate from Christianity. But for Marsilius, Christianity is true, and therefore its marriage to politics is an eminently desirable thing. Well, it would be silly for politics to try and regulate the spiritual sphere, which you could call anything that occurs imminently as opposed to transitively, which basically these terms Marsilius uses. Imminent is a thought or feeling that remains inside you, doesn't spill out into any external thing or agent. But if it's transitive, it crosses over, say, yeah, I say anything to you. The excesses of those transitive acts could really end up hurting people. And that's where politics gets involved. And yeah, it would be silly for politics to regulate thought in the way the papacy did at Marsilius's time. But it would also be silly for there to be no divine law that regulates the imminent. So, and, and yeah, in book yes. two, you see Marsilius on the one hand talk about the uh, priesthood as just another external office of the city, just one type of law that's not really a coercive law. It's just a, a judgment that people uh, can talk about. But but then he also talks about the priesthood as something divinely ordained because what's essential to it and what's common to all priests is this kind of habit of the soul that comes from Christ and yeah, God alone. Yes, there is a, a spiritual community here. It's just that this spiritual community, uh, while it has spiritual knowledge, that knowledge is completely uh, uh, not something that can be used in this world because for Marsilius, the judgment occurs in the next world. And therefore, we cannot subject people to spiritual judgments in this life. And so there is a space for priests to gain spiritual knowledge through a kind of community of spiritual knowing that goes back to Christ and the apostles. But it can't translate into any sort of independent temporal authority. Right? So it's acknowledged, that kind of spiritual knowledge and spiritual community is acknowledged, but it is not allowed to supervene upon emperors. Because if it supervenes upon emperors, then the spiritual laws are being used to judge people in the here and the now, rather than at the appropriate moment, which is after everybody's dead. So you see how he kind of wriggles out of that? He's able to say that there is spiritual knowledge, there can be spiritual community, but to box it out of the political entirely. And that's why it's not a sword. It's not two swords because the spiritual community doesn't come with any authority in this life. And so, therefore, to be a priest is to surrender the possibility of authority in this life, just as it's to surrender the possibility of ownership in this life. But it's having some agency over sins, like using the sacraments such as penance as a weapon against sin. Does that not mean you have some kind of power? Well, if you are going to use these things uh, in the social context, then your use of these things has got to be, for, for Marsilius, dependent upon the political authority. So it's the political authority which authorizes priests to play particular roles within the community. And the roles that the priests play and anything that the priests use to perform those roles, the use of those things, because the priests are not meant to own anything, the use of those things depends also on the dispensation of the community, which of course enjoys ownership. So any kind of spiritual knowledge that the priests may have, it doesn't translate into authority. But they can still play a social role. Indeed, Marsilius says they must play a social role because 
their ability to use things depends upon their willingness to play that social role. So for Marsilius, for the priests to eat, it must be because the state gives them food to eat. And it does that contingent upon the priests performing a social role in their communities. Right. And that's why he says you should not have these kind of, and this is where he departs company with some of the fratricelli. Many of the fratricelli and the, the spiritualists of this period would live as beggars. They would just beg uh, for money or for food. They would uh, not participate in social life really at all. These were priests that were no good really to anybody. They were just kind of using uh, their religious beliefs from Marsilius's point of view as an excuse to uh, scrounge around. And he says, no, no, if you're really going to accept uh, poverty and to accept that you don't have authority, that means submitting yourself to the temporal authority. That means submitting yourself to the community and the community's will and performing for it whatever it needs. And only on that basis being delegated food. And if it doesn't perform what you need, of course, then the legislator can decide to start persecuting it. Um, but I do disagree with what you said about the order, the mendicant order, being a kind of scrounge in society. Because if they didn't commit that many crimes and they just lived off subsistence, then they might have been quite of uh, an encouragement to the people around them. Because there's this whole community of peaceful people that descends into the town every day. And yeah, they just occupy time and affairs and make sure that no law breaking happens. And people who do want to commit laws kind of look at them and kind of get repelled a little bit. I don't know. Um, I, I, th I certainly think you can make arguments to defend the mendicants. But I think it's, it's worth pointing out that for Marsilius, it was important that priests submit themselves to the community and its needs. And that begging was not, for him, the right or optimal way to live in poverty as a priest. He wanted those priests socially embedded. Yeah, but he also wanted them to fully endure whatever political outcome happened, as, as good or as bad as it gets. And when it does get bad, if you're a Christian of the kind of the apostles of the early church, you will see tyranny as a kind of chance to purify your sins yeah to be tested so that right that, and that to might continue to service the community even in situations where they don't agree well no because you can't renounce the faith because Marcellus no, also renounce believes that, the faith so you might end up having to live in a kind of slavish or at least mendicant position well you might have to yes if if the secular authority makes uh, decisions that are heavily not to your benefit. Although I also think there is an emphasis here on the goodness of the emperors. Because the emperors are the beneficiaries of this miracle of the intervention of Christ for Marsilius. So for Marsilius, politics and, and religion had been separated. And the kind of religion that States in the ancient world, the pagan pagan Roman Empire and, and other states had implemented, those were fully politicized faiths. They were not true and they existed purely to serve political purposes. And therefore, there was this estrangement between the community of, of human knowers, the natural community, and the spiritual realm. But for Marsilius, Christ's intervention allows these things to come back together and allows for the community uh, to pick 
emperors who are faithful. And of course, the expectation would be if you're, if you have an elected monarchy and you have faithful electors who are Christian, then they will pick a faithful Christian elector and that faithful Christian elector will enjoy a consensus. And that consensus is a consensus of faithful Christian opinion. It's a community of faithful Christians picking an emperor on the basis of their notions of what's virtuous. So for Marsilius, this system is meant to very much encourage faithful Christian emperors uh, who are virtuous and just. So it's not uh, a theory that tries to make up for the, the lack of virtuous people. Right? There are some accounts of political theory, like, say, Montesquieu, where there's a, a kind of premise that virtue is not really accessible or not really achievable. And so a kind of state is imagined which makes up for the fact that there's no virtue by, by compensating for it. This is instead an institutional scheme for ensuring virtuous princes. So the goal here is to get faithful Christian emperors who would not do the kinds of things. Doesn't he kind of say that virtue is so obvious, it's kind of, you can know it by sense experience, just observing that certain polities are peaceful and harmonious and that virtue could be the only cause of that? Or not? Or is it more demonstration, more reasons that kind of have to prove that in Marsilius? Well, you know, I think that uh, a peaceful realm, if it's peaceful, then usually the reasons it's peaceful have something to do with some set of virtues. Um, yes. But... I think that uh, part of the reason it's broken up into two discourses, uh, the defender, uh, well, technically three, the defender of the peace is broken up into three discourses, but two main discourses, is that they're, they're both kind of arriving at a lot of the same positions through different arguments. So in the first part, uh, the first discourse, there's a lot of emphasis on the natural reasons, things that anybody could sense or spot regardless of their religious affiliation, uh, just basic arguments uh, based on what anybody could observe and often kind of empirical in character. The second discourse is more spiritual in emphasis. You, know, you could even maybe say more rationalist in emphasis insofar as it is not focused on epistemological claims and is instead focused on church history and scripture and is premised on the truth of of Christianity, uh, interpreted in some sense. And then, of course, Marsilius offers a particular interpretation. So both arguments are there. Now, Marsilius says that the second argument, that the spiritual argument, could suffice on its own. Uh, I'm not so sure that he would claim that the first argument can suffice on its own, because if you really believe that it could suffice on its own, then there wouldn't be a need for Christianity. So the uh, the argument about the sensory, I think, needs to be for theological reasons supplemented. And yet when he does bring in theology and the salvation of Christ as this kind of magical intervention that turns the human legislator into a faithful human legislator, he's still... I don't know, maybe I'm grasping at straws, but there's a big similarity between the kind of covenant between God and his people and the emperor and the laws, or the prince and the laws, book one. Yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, 
And and this is where there is a kind of Roman law basis here, because Marsilius da, is familiar with Roman law, uh, was operating in, in um, you know, at a time when Roman law was increasingly of interest to scholars. And so the Roman idea of consensus does involve a certain mutual recognition. So on the one hand, institutionally, there's an election, and theoretically, once you're elected, then you're the emperor. And perhaps... You know, we can assume that what you, know, you would only have been elected if you were good. But what if you subsequently deviate and after the election you become not so good? Uh, there, you still need this kind of supplementary Roman idea of a living consensus, a consensus that is uh, carried out day to day. And I think that is where we get this, um, you know, this kind of implicit idea that the emperor has to continue to behave in this in this way that shows that he's faithful that shows that he respects the law and if he doesn't do that then there's the possibility of a breakup in the consensus yeah that there's an unequal treaty so the ruler is obviously more of a you might call it a, a suzerain and then the the other party is the vassal so the vassal pays respect and they get certain blessings, but they also get curses if they don't obey. A bit like, uh, yeah, with the biblical law. Yeah, and you see that in with Roman emperors, that there is, yes, the Roman emperor is supposed to behave a certain kind of way, and the legitimacy is predicated on behaving, but also you're supposed to treat the emperor as the emperor in return for that, and that is a huge uh, demand on the subject, uh, on subject cities. They have to pay in ancient times the gift tax and all of that uh, to the new emperors to show the recognition that they are, in fact, the emperor. And so that, that I do think, is you know, part of the, the hairiness of this is a lot of this rides on the ability of the electors to pick a faithful, a faithful emperor. And if you think that that isn't something that the faithful electors are going to be able to do, or if you think that even if they uh, are initially able to pick a faithful emperor, that uh, that is going to lapse after a time, uh, then that starts to become a basis for potentially criticizing monarchy as an institution, even elected monarchy. Uh, and I think that for the most part, more contemporary theorists have not really liked elective monarchy for that kind of reason. But there has been an interest in the modern scholarship uh, on this idea of consensus and on this idea of an institutionalized, constitutionalized form of consensus. And if you look at, at this representative government that we get going, the idea of representation is not really in evidence in Marsilius. Uh, I don't think to, to anything like the degree that we'll see later on in, say, Hobbes. But... This idea of having an emperor who is there to express something in the community rather than just, say, have the emperor's will represented to other people through, uh, say, the emperor's uh, governors or the emperor's uh, you know, legates, right? To, to have the emperor being there to interpret something external which has authority over the emperor but is not purely scriptural purely religious in nature, but is something which itself rises up from the community. That kind of idea uh, in many ways anticipates the kind of states that we eventually are going to have, 
And I think that is why a lot of modern scholars see Marsilius as a major turning point figure in the Middle Ages, because there is an awful lot of modern scholars who are looking at this stuff going, uh, where's the democracy? Where's the liberalism? When are these things going to show up? Uh, another group that likes uh, Marsilius is the set of people who are interested in property rights because they see in Marsilius an early version of a kind of individual individual rights, right? This idea of a kind of individual use right as separated from the individual right of ownership. And this idea of rights as things possessed by individuals, that, that specific kind of, of emphasis on, on being able to do particular things with things, the individual being able to do stuff, being able to use things. That is a kind of language that we don't see a ton of prior to Marsilius. And so a lot of, of fans of property rights theory look at Marsilius as a kind of pioneer of the language they like to use. That's not to say that there were no legal codes of inheritance or things like that, but just that their effectiveness came from the fact that when you inherit, obviously, you do it as a Christian, so you're within the faith, or you make sure that the sacrament of matrimony or marriage is applied so that the successor is in the church, or you make sure that you're not excommunicated. So any theory of ownership or dominion or property, even though it can be read as purely legal before that, it always pointed towards some kind of church or supernatural role. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah. or uh, it can also be a, a kind of class. So for instance, in ancient Roman law, there are the rights of Roman citizens, right? But citizen is a class status uh, and a class status, a political status that is you know, inherently bound up with a particular political organization, you know, the political state form, the Roman Empire, uh, or the Roman Republic, it is not something that just an individual would possess kind of in a vacuum. And with Marsilius, we see some talk of property rights uh, in uh, belonging to individuals as individuals, and not necessarily, you know, as examples of a particular status. You know, there are the rights of nobles, the rights of priests, the rights of citizens, but individuals, that is uh, a different turn here. So there are a lot of, of things people see in Marsilius that they consider important or influential. And I think it's an early example of how this concept of the natural, once you start to move off of the consensus view of what is natural or what natural law is or how we discover it, once you start moving away from the Thomistic position or the positions within the Catholic Church that are considered acceptable within the Catholic Church, very quickly you start to get major, major controversies about how states should operate and about how states should work. And Marsilius is a big, blaring early example of how once you change what natural means and what natural law means and how you get at natural law, how you arrive at it, the whole way of generating legitimacy changes. And so the attempt to maintain the Catholic consensus is even as early as Marsilius in the 14th century, early 14th century, uh, badly threatened by these controversies about what's natural. And when you consider that Thomas Aquinas himself doesn't come along until the high Middle Ages, the codification of uh, Catholic political theory occurs rather late in the medieval period. It, it does not occur until 
you know, really, you start getting toward Aquinas. And so there is uh, an awful uh, briefness to the period in which that kind of doctrine enjoys a privileged space politically. It, it really doesn't go that long. And even from a very early stage, it's set upon by people like Marsilius, by people like the Fratricelli. And of course, all of these people are heretics. And they all are denounced. But in the end, uh, the arguments that they make ultimately do spread. Whether you like them or you don't like them, you agree with them or you don't agree with them, they spread. And a lot of, of what our present world looks like uh, owes itself to the spread of these kinds of ideas. So, uh, oh, go for it, Alex. What do you got? Just about the individual. If there was room for the individual, I think it would be in the faith, right? In Marsilius. Because when he talks about the laws and the offices of the city, individuals have no authority there. Yeah, no, the... the Discussion of the individual that I think is interesting for, from the point of view of modern writers is this idea of individual rights, individual rights too. Now, that does not mean that he thinks that the individual can be broken off from the community politically. And there he follows a more straightforward Aristotelian line. Uh, knowledge itself is a community production. So individuals cannot uh, you know, generate knowledge on their own very effect efficiently in the absence of community. Uh, but this, this notion of individual rights, that is uh, an early version of a kind of individualism that modern theorists will take further in their own directions. But you're quite right to point out, politically, you've got to stay politically embedded. And that's why he's somewhat critical of the Medicum tradition, because he does take that Aristotelian view that you've got to be uh, part of the of the political community. Does he say much about sin, about original well, sin? It's it's so original sin is the thing which ultimately causes us to become estranged from the divine. So the reason that we end up with all these pagan states in the ancient world in antiquity is because of the fall and because of original sin. Christ, however, then miraculously intervenes to bring us back into alignment with the divine. But then there's an issue, Ben, because then the way you get at knowledge through Christ, as opposed to all the other natural Aristotelian knowledge disciplines, are totally different. With Aristotle, I guess it's more, you do inner work, you improve your knowledge, uh, you can trust yourself maybe, but with Christ, you can't... Well, you can be certain that there's salvation... Uh, on not on the basis of your faith, how strong it is, or even understanding of scripture and where the contradictions are. It's just about trusting that that guy, Jesus, died for our sins. So it, all the burden of knowledge is on, yeah, just knowing that the resurrection happened and that Christ is the agent. So, yeah, individuals aren't really, it's not a community of knowers in the same sense, is it? It's not, you're not improving upon anything and you're not doing inner work, maybe. Well, you, well there's, there's what the lay practitioner is expected to do. And then there's what, you know, an apostle would be doing. Uh, you know, Christ does not necessarily speak to everybody at precisely the same level. And the community of spiritual knowers engages with Christian doctrine at a different level from, say, the ordinary peasant. Yeah, and it will need a political community to keep that spiritual knowledge alive. 
Yeah. Well, and, and to figure out how to yeah, um, provide for the continued existence of priests and of the spiritual community. But of course, because the political community is meant to be faithful due to the miraculous intervention, it will, of course, be concerned with maintaining the possibility of, of a community of spiritual knowers, or at least that would be, I think, the way that Marsilius m- might take that. Mm. And so, in many ways, it's an attempt to kind of revive uh, certain ancient ideas about the relationship between states and polities, but it maintains this medieval commitment to Christianity being true and that being an important part of the theory. And it does work in the theory that Christianity is true. You know, there are some, ser- some theorists who make a point to say that, what th- that their theory is compatible with Christianity or that it doesn't contradict it. But Marsilius's theory depends on the belief that it's true, right? So that's the medieval thing about it. The ancient thing about it is that it you know, emphasizes the primacy of the political, and it emphasizes Roman ideas of consensus, and it emphasizes the Holy Roman, em- you know, the, the Roman Emperor. The medieval aspect is that it really depends on Christianity being true. It's not enough to just have this. Uh, this this classical account, right? But then there are things which seemingly anticipate early modern views in this as well. And so Mar- Marsilius is such a fun person for theorists to think about because he draws on uh, and and anticipates so many different schools of thought and political ideas and concepts that will be important in the Western tradition. So he is reminding us of things that have come before. He is drawing on things that are very current in his own time. And he seems to suggest things to us that we recognize in the work of later theorists. So he's kind of all over. He's, the, the fingers of Marsilius are all over the tradition. Yeah, a lot of you might call Republican elements if you forget the whole part about the Republic corresponding with a faithful community. But... You know, yeah, he could offices. be read in a Republican direction, but because he is, he doesn't really give any kind of preference to Republicanism over uh, principalities. He can also be read in a monarchist direction. Uh, he's very double about that. Some theorists are clearly for monarchy and against republics. Some of them are clearly for republics uh, and against monarchies. I think Marsilius perhaps has a slight preference for monarchy in part because you know, he's writing this thinking about the Holy Roman Empire and about Louis. But this oh, is an argument that could be taken, could be taken in a Republican direction and was inspiring to Republican authors subsequently. Yeah, things like the the laws, each individual office vying for power with the others and how you control the ambition when one usurps the others, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there, there, and there is some of that kind of mixed regime uh, Aristotelianism, but but with this big, big role given to the prince. And as you move into the second discourse, the prince's role becomes even more important because the prince becomes an important player in securing the spiritual project of Christianity. And so in that respect, I do think that this this theory ultimately goes in a, a bit more of a monarchist direction, but you can easily see how a modified version of this would be compatible with republicanism. It's not uh, a theory that is hostile to uh, republicanism. Uh, 
Not to say that Marsil, I'm not giving an, a view about whether Marsilius himself would be hostile to republicanism, but I don't think the theory is incompatible, strictly incompatible with something like that. Uh, Especially because so many of them were faithful initially, anyway, Republicans. Yes, yes. But I guess then they were trying to appeal to that using dog whistle language or just implicitly, or they wouldn't make it like Marsilius a, a concrete requirement of a polity. Well, it becomes harder as time goes on, I think, for theorists to make uh, Christianity do work in their political theory because it, it requires this idea that you're going to be able to get a consensus. And in the third discourse, which we haven't really discussed, there is this kind of call to action from Marsilius of, of you know, kind of go out and find ways of, of instantiating this theory. Now that I've shared with you some ancient knowledge, unblemished by... Uh, all of the corrupt things that have happened over the last couple thousand years. You know, now you're supposed to go out and implement this theory. And so there's a, a hope here that people will read The Defender of the Peace, and then they will agree with the kind of view that Marsilius has, and then they will go out and they will support the claims of Louis IV and, and so on. They'll go out and in their own ways, uh, stand up for this account of political theory. And so... In many ways, even this theory is based on the idea that a consensus is achievable. And this idea that there can be kind of one set fixed consensus on who the emperor is, you elect an emperor, then you have the view of the, the correct religion that comes out of that, the virtues of, of having been faithful, generating the faithful emperor who, be, being faithful, will behave in the right kind of way. All of this relies on it really being possible for there to be a consensus about what it means to be a faithful Christian and what it means to be a good emperor and that the emperor can behave in a way which corresponds to the standard of the law, which is the consensus view of the political community and that we can speak of the political community as this united thing, which has this consensus view and this standard that the emperor can align things with. So all of this emphasis on, on consensus uh, on political consensus, on spiritual consensus, that's what ultimately makes Marsilius not modern. Because a lot of modern theorists, uh, and especially the, the theorists of, say, the 19th century and the 20th century especially, are focused on the permanence of division and the fact that it is not possible to restore or replace the Catholic consensus with some other consensus of comparable strength. But in this period, it's still possible for theorists to imagine uh, that if they disagree with the Catholic account of how all of this works, that they might replace it with something else, that they might get an imperial state similar to the Roman Empire that might uh, operate in this kind of way, and that it might have the kind of universal presence that would enable this kind of theory to at least seem plausible. And that's the thing about Marsilius that is totally antique and totally me medieval and completely inaccessible to, I think, a lot of uh, contemporary scholars. So th there are things about this theory that I think intoxicate a lot of modern scholars and things about it which are completely unfathomable. A and that's part of what makes it such a, a fun theory to wrap your head around. Mm. So that takes us to about an hour. I'm going to give Alex one more shot to uh, throw in another question or a thought if he's got anything. Mm. Just still not certain that if he does define the priesthood 
yeah, that tension between the divinely ordained priesthood and the humanly ordained priesthood. Because in Discourse 1, he says that Discourse 2 can be read standalone, but if you read Discourse 1 standalone, and he credits these ancient arguments where the people who made the religions, he, he says that they invented them, didn't believe them epistemically, just practically because they regulated behavior well. Um, yeah, that sounds pretty heretical. But then in Discourse 2, obviously, no human legislator could alienate from any priest that habit of the soul. And yet, as we've spent so much time trying to establish, they can they can do that if they choose to. So no, it, it doesn't work out, does the it? They regulate behavior. They regulate the behavior, right? And there's an important distinction between what goes on in your mind and what you do. Your transitive. And that, yeah, and that eminence versus transitiveness aspect to this is important. The priests are able to do all sorts of things in their minds, but if they behave outwardly in a way which undermines the political community or is deemed to undermine it by the emperor, then that's an issue. And you'll see a certain distinction drawn in, in Hobbes that's kind of similar, where Hobbes will suggest that you remain free to think whatever you want provided that you don't act on it in a way which contravenes the law because you are not wiser you know, for, for Marsilius it's you are not wiser than the law so whatever it is that you think might be true the law represents the community wisdom which is inherently greater than that of any particular person so if the law says that you ought not to do something that and, it, and you persist in doing it anyway you're defying the wisdom of the community and how can you have a knowledge which is greater than that community's wisdom well perhaps. as just one person faith what if the community that preserved the faith is so small that it's not the community so yeah just a well, few underground the apostles. community preserving the faith is the holy roman empire from marsilius it's yeah. not so small as all that right and then as soon as they uh, but if, yeah the legislators but of course the fact that the holy roman empire has fallen that there is no holy roman emperor uh, that Christianity uh, in the contemporary world persists as a lot of different sects in lots of different places, uh, even in countries that are majority Christian. Most of the individual denominations are not ma the majority and are competing with other variants, uh, both of Christianity and of other faiths. Now, that whole kind of theory is much harder to sustain. But in a medieval context where there's still this thought that you can have religious consensus, that that's a realistic and achievable aim, Marsilius can be positioned as someone who is trying to revise the consensus position instead of someone who is arguing about how politics should work in a post-consensus world. And that's why you know, he is included among those medieval theorists, uh, even though there are some ideas in Marsilius that do seem to gesture at some of what we do later on, he doesn't get positioned like he's Hobbes or Locke. He doesn't get brought in as, as uh, a secular thinker or as a humanist or as a, some kind of, of early modern. He is before Machiavelli. He is before Hobbes. And theorists are usually reluctant to say that modernity begins with Marsilius. <laughs> They usually prefer to position Machiavelli or Hobbes as the first modern thinker, if such sharp distinctions between modern and ancient uh, can be drawn. So any priest that does use a sacrament 
is kind of committing a transitive act. And of course, the, the actual work, the magic of restoring grace to the person uh, or the sinner is done by God and not the priest. So then what is the what is the sacrament to the priest? It's not an internal habit of soul. It's purely an external office. So then why does Marsilius say that the priests still have this internal habit of soul? You see, it, it's, it's still a bit unclear. Well, hmm. it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think... Um, I don't know if I, if I have a, a great answer to that. I think if it's an internal habit of soul, then it, it doesn't need to be expressed externally. Uh, if it really is an internal habit of soul, then it doesn't require external expression to take place. Mm. But I, I take your point that if you are someone who is a priest and you t- understand the role of being a priest as acting on the basis of your conscience or acting on the basis of what you believe to be right or wrong or acting on the basis of what you believe scripture requires you to do, uh, this is not a theory that you're going to like because this is a theory that says that your judgment must be uh, subordinated to the law. Yeah, that brings- And that's why you, you look at the Protestant theories that emphasize personal conscience, personal judgment. Uh, they don't draw particularly heavily on someone like Marsilius either. And that's why I think, you know, when you, when you uh, talk to my friend Rafe about, hey, which political theorists are in the theology curriculum and which aren't, uh, that's one of the reasons Marsilius isn't. Because he doesn't really satisfy uh, defenders of, of Catholicism or Orthodoxy, and he doesn't really satisfy Protestants who want you to act on the basis of your conscience. Is that definitely a very Protestant thing as opposed to Catholic? Because surely a, a Christian could say that any attempt to get worldly justice, so I get my Jews, and the per- so yeah, the person wronged gets Jews, not just the wrongdoer. Yeah, a spiritual justice is, could be more like. Uh, give everything to the wrongdoer or at least give everything to those in need and not ask for anything yourself, not ask for worldly justice, because obviously that's in the next life. In the context of the Reformation, the emphasis in the Reformation is on kind of having one's own relationship eventually uh, with God, with Jesus. And if you have your own relationship with Jesus, then you can't defer uh, judgment about the will of God to an authority figure. Whereas in the case of Catholicism, you are expected to maintain fidelity to Catholic doctrine. And you can't deviate from that doctrine without crossing into potentially heresy. So there isn't room to individually modify doctrine on the basis of what you think uh, is right or wrong. Uh, Whereas in a lot of, of Protestant and especially evangelical Protestant traditions, there evolves this ability of the individual to kind of operate on their own and to have a direct line does that mean to, and take- to not need the priests or the uh, or the pope or other authority figures as intermediaries is this in politics not just in their personal uh struggle maybe as in they can use yeah, this interpret- yeah, yeah. Then that's going to bleed into politics if you think that and into the kind of individual personal liberty arguments that become more popular as time goes on uh, if you think that the individual has some kind of direct connection to jesus direct connection to god then the individual has to be free to act on the basis of that because the individual's conscience is a a divine signal which must be respected 
And so then that gives you a, a kind of political theory which heavily emphasizes individual liberty. Uh, we don't have that yet with Marsilius, but uh, that comes later. And so I think that is a big part of why Protestants are not necessarily drawn to this, especially you know American Protestants of the kind who are likely to have that sort of evangelical Christian view. One last thing I was quite surprised at is finding out about the mendicant orders and how they were supported by the popes, which seems like the opposite to me. You've got complete poverty on the one hand and papal monarchy on the other. Yeah, so there's a kind of mendicant order which is compatible with the church, right? So remember at the beginning, I made a distinction between the Franciscans and the Fratricelli heresy. So the Franciscans are okay. The Fratricelli heretics are not. The Fratricelli heretics call the authority of the priests and bishops into question, whereas the Franciscans are just arguing that taking a vow of poverty is an acceptable way of being a priest uh, and being spiritual, and that there is something of value in emulating the behavior of Christ and the apostles in doing that. And that kind of behavior, when it's compatible with the maintenance of the church structure, when it doesn't challenge the authority of the church structure, uh, if the church is able to say that those people are okay, then that creates a way by which people can participate in this very popular kind of spiritual practice in the Middle Ages uh, without being heretics. And it would be hard to say that anybody who takes a vow of poverty is a heretic because there is too much vow of poverty taking in the early scriptures. So you can't just say all the mendicants are heretics. Uh, As long as the mendicants will respect the bishops, they're okay. And so there's a sort of uneasy truce between the mendicants and the uh and the bishops yeah it is uneasy it's based on the mutual acknowledgement of one another's role (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. the mendicants go beyond that and start questioning the role of the bishops and the bishops will call them heretics and police them out because marsilius references bernard of clavo a lot i didn't read him but it and just looking at a gloss on wikipedia bernard looks like a, a friend of the pope you know but he, yeah. the, the the writings that Marsilius quotes, as they do, talking about the value of poverty, seem like a, a weapon against the papacy. So, just a yeah. bit confused Franci- there. Well, the Franciscan version, yes, the Fratricelli version, okay, no, okay. and it's it's a it's a very thin line between those things. Yeah, and you got to be careful about which side of that line you end up on in this period. Yeah, I guess Aquinas right. was Franciscan, so it's not that. Yeah, you can you can get away with it, um, provided you stay within that box. So, thank you guys so much for listening, uh, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you.